Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here, joined in my office uh, with Dr. Michael Berg, as we are now recording session number eight of our Winging It series on the life of Luther. We really hope that you are enjoying it. If you are, please consider uh, sharing it, telling your friends about it. Rate or review us on iTunes. We asked to get to 75 ratings and reviews, and you guys got us there like super quick, like months before expected. And so our next goal is to get to 100. We are a part of the 1517 Podcasting Network, and that's one of the challenges that Caleb over there has set for us, and I think it's a very good one. He had some very helpful thoughts as we kind of continue to organize and expand the conversation with our podcast and with the network. Uh, So if you're enjoying it, please do share it. Uh, There are written devotions that have been appearing on the website daily. Hopefully we can keep that up. We're doing our best. Um, But you can subscribe by email to those if you want at the website, or they're shared on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, But we're really hoping to expand the conversation, and we really appreciate everything you're doing to help us do so. Uh, And keep up the feedback, too. We're getting great comments, great emails, some episode ideas, questions that we can follow up from stuff we talked about from this and from episodes And so we thank you for that. That being said, we left off in the last session with Luther's journey to Rome, uh, kind of a dispute among some of the Augustinians, observant monasteries and and non-observant, more conventional, I believe is the term that we could use. Uh, I could be getting that wrong. Uh, But this dispute partly in, or well, in response to someone who had been very important for Luther and would be more important later to uh, Johann von Staupitz, who was the head of the order, And Luther goes to Rome kind of as a rebel, trying to stop Staupitz's plan from going through, and will return kind of an obedient son. The appeal fails, and he decides, okay, my job then is to submit to my superior. What we want to do now is step back a little bit and talk about something that's important for Luther's formation at this time that isn't necessarily bound to chronology because it will be important for him throughout his life, um, even with his pastor, Bugenhagen, later. Confession will be very important. Uh, and then next time, maybe get into Staupitz as a person more. So these, this session and the next one are not necessarily bound in, in the chronology like some of them have been. But what I want us to get at a little bit in this session is the role of confession in Luther's life, especially his life as a monk. But this is a theme that we'll come back later on because anyone who uh, has learned the catechism knows that Luther— thought confession and absolution was something that should be retained in the church and was very important, although with important changes, he doesn't have the enumeration of sins. Um, But confession was a regular and integral part of the monastic life. It was a regular and integral part of piety in general, even for lay people, although, you know, really you had, for sure you had to go once a year, usually before Easter. But for a monk, this was, was next level. And one of the things that stands out about his trip to Rome is one of the things he complains about is a poor confessor there. So he went to confession with a priest, a biked fodder, a confessor, and he really just didn't think that this person, the confessor, handled himself well. And what could that mean? It could mean a lot of things. Uh, but we need to understand this was a, confession was a rather elaborate thing compared to what it is now. I myself grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, grew up— um, after fourth grade, when I got the Sacrament of Reconciliation, grew up going to confession. Uh, but even in the Roman Catholic Church, it's a very different thing now than it was then. Um, 
I mean, just the fact that now you can sit in the office with the priest rather than behind the screen, although I always went behind the screen because I somehow thought he wouldn't know who I was then, but he knew full well uh, who I was. Um, but at this time, it was very elaborate, and the, the confessor really wanted to get into the head and the heart of the person coming, really wanted to examine the conscience of the person. And conscience became central to confession. Uh, what thoughts have you had? Why did you have those thoughts? Um, what were those thoughts connected to? Why were they connected to that? What are recurring sins? And, uh, you know, there's an instance um, in, a, was it Dickens' English Reformation book, where he talks about we have some of the records of the monks would confess to the bishop and then the bishop would keep records. And some people have looked at that and said, look how bad the monks were. No, if there were confessions for everyone in general, the monks were doing really good. But you were meant to rack your brain, to, to examine your conscience and your life, to find things to come and confess. And so we know there's times Luther would confess, go to leave, turn around, go back in because he thought of other stuff. And uh, this becomes foundational for how Luther will do theology and for his uh, Reformation. He has a crisis of conscience, and he finds peace for his conscience in the gospel. We're a conscience people in America, right? We believe in freedom of conscience, but we can take that in a very different way than what Luther would have meant. We can take freedom of conscience to mean I, I should have a right to have a conscience formed however I want it to be formed, and I'm going to be me, and I'm going to find me, and I'm going to speak my truth. For Luther, a conscience was always to be well-formed. A conscience was to be in accord with something true, right? So a well-formed conscience is going to be shaped by God's Word, by the commandments. And if you look at the small catechism and the large catechism, that's what he's doing, right? He's saying, this is how you examine yourself. This is this is the mirror um, into which you look to examine yourself. And so conscience becomes central for a number of reasons, and we can kind of come to them in a bit. But I threw out a lot. That's like five minutes of my voice, Mike. And why don't you jump with anything that's come? This is definitely, I'm putting Mike a little bit spur of the moment on this one because I, I just thought it'd be important for us to record it. But anything that's popping in your head, Mike. Well, yeah, you know, when you think about, okay, a free con like you said, free conscience here in America is that, you know, I can think how I want. But if you would have said to Luther, what's a free conscience? You would have said, free from guilt, free from, like, I'm, I'm free from sin. Yeah, that's a perfect way of saying yeah. it. So, and, and I think that's important not to go too, uh, too off on a tangent, but uh, when you think about uh, St. Paul thinking about, okay, you're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. You're like, what do you mean slave to righteousness? At first glance, that seems like something like, oh, geez, now I'm a, I'm a good person now. i got to be a slave. Those of us in ministry have all had... Mem well, most of us have had members who really struggle with that idea. Of, mm -hmm. I don't want to be a slave. You know? Right. I don't want to do this. And it and it really sounds like, yeah, if I'm going to be a slave, you know, I mean, I get I probably should be a slave to righteousness, but the slave to sin is going to be a lot more fun. And when I, I interrupted Mike's class today, uh, they were on a break, to be fair, and I was on a break. We're teaching J-term. And I came in, and I think a student was actually talking to you somewhat about this Somebody, very yeah. same thing. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of... The way I kind of sort of explained it in class was, listen, the old man's a slave to sin because that's all he can do. And the new man is a, if you want to call it, slave to righteousness because that's all he can do. But it's not really slavery, is it, right? So 
it's it's a freedom from sin. And the opposite of the freedom from sin would be this righteousness. And kind of the same way we think about the goal is a free conscience. For Luther, the goal is a free conscience as in I'm free from this burden of sin. And it's not I can just do whatever I want, however I want, whenever freedom, that kind of thing. And, 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 and that plays into the idea of going to the confession. I'm going there to be to be have this burden lifted off of me, not so that I can just Oh, I, I get rid of this this sin thing and this 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 sort of transitional transactional kind of thing, and then and then I'm good, and then I can be free as and do what I want to kind of do. That, that that's one false thing. The the other false thing about confession, maybe it's more of a modern. Uh, these are more modern concerns, but that um, okay, it's a quid pro quo thing. I go in there. Here's the sin I did. I know that there's going to be then so much sort of satisfaction or penance, and we just try to get the the, the columns lined up. And this kind is of the thing. reciprocal nature Luther will really object to with the the, the indulgences in fifteen seventeen. And and so the the goal of a clear conscience or a good conscience before God, first free from sin, but then also formed by the law, as you had mentioned, is is the exact opposite happens in the confessional. Right, it, you're not spurred on to be a slave to righteousness. You're stuck in this transactional kind of situation, and uh, and because there's no way you could enumerate all your sins, <laughs> you know, there's no way that you could totally cleanse yourself of that. Um, you don't have that free conscience, as in um, I'm freed from that guilt. There's always more. There's always more. There's always more. So, yeah, the, I, I can, in my mind, kind of think of when we talk about a good conscience or a free conscience, think of those two things. One is the relief. Ah, I'm free in Christ. I don't have that guilt. I am no longer—nobody can accuse me anymore, Romans kind of— Blameless Psalms. Yeah, and then the other one would be, like you said, a formed conscience. That, that, that would be maybe more of the slave to, to righteousness, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, b- before— Maybe one little thing that kind of bothers me a little bit in the modern Lutheran church is that that uh, going to confession, we would call it private absolution, is some sort of a Roman Catholic thing when it's actually quite an apostolic Jesus thing, right? John chapter 20, this beautiful connection where if you confess your sins and the pastor says, I forgive you, Jesus, for, he says, I forgive you, not somebody else, for, God forgives you. I forgive you because the forgiveness is that close, and that and that that's the the whole goal here is to relieve people of their sins, and so you know just as a personal pastoral matter, and I know this is not what maybe we were intended in, in the Winging It series, but if your your Lutheran pastor, if you're a Lutheran, your Lutheran pastor should be trained and should know to receive your confession, to absolve you, and um, if what's keeping you is embarrassment, don't worry about it the seal of the confession is closed. There's no records kept. Or if you're like, if, unless I enumerate all my sins and, and nobody thinks I got to number all of them, but I got to mention the big ones for it to count. Don't worry about it. Go in and confess what you're comfortable confessing at that time and moment. And, and then just confess the whole, whole thing that, yep, there's other sins too that, um, that, that, that are weighing heavy on me. And then just receive that freedom so that you can literally have a good conscience before God. 
Um, yeah, and I'll give it to you, uh, uh, Wade, but at some point we need to talk about back then the manuals and even today being a father confessor, it's, it's not science, it's art. There's, there's guidance that you give, not in a, a, a penance do this kind of way. And, And I think sometimes we maybe are a little too harsh, sometimes not harsh enough, um, but maybe a little too harsh in this circumstance with the Roman Catholic Church, like, okay, say your Hail Mary, say your Lord's Prayer, stuff like that. Well, th- there's some pastoral advice there. I mean, I would never give the pastoral advice, now go see, t- go, go uh, recite the Lord's Prayer ten times. That, that's not what I mean. But you may say, okay, you know what? I, you know, let's think about Romans chapter 8 here. Let's think about uh, some other portion of Scripture that really would be beneficial for you. You know, th- there's some pastoral advice that comes after the confession and the absolution, and and we don't need to throw the the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. Yeah, uh, if I can kind of riff a little bit on something you had early on that I was really digging is um, when we when we talk about freedom, uh, the way at Luther's time. And still today in um, modern Roman Catholic practice of confession and absolution and then satisfaction, the idea of freedom from sin through confession is through you progressing beyond sin, right? Through the sacramental system, I'm going to get to the point where I sin less. I don't commit that sin anymore. I'm not going to replace it with another. And we can see um, how that ultimately leads to either self-righteousness or despair, we actually think we have progressed to where we think we need Jesus less rather than being driven deeper into Christ, which is what this will do for Luther, um, or we're driven to despair because we can we don't see progress. Uh, what will become important with Luther's uh, Reformation and really the thesis statement of Luther's Reformation is Romans one seventeen, the just shall live by faith, is that that freedom from sin will come through the word of absolution which comes from outside of you rather than something that you can summon inside of you. And so part of what it's important to understand with the monastic life and for Luther, and Luther was what we would, um, what at that time would have been called a scrupulous person. He had scruples. He was really troubled about things he had done wrong or might have done wrong. And in fact, he could even find things <coughs> that he was repentant for that weren't even sin. You know, the one confessor supposedly told him he'd never confessed anything remotely interesting. <laughs> And that Jesus died for fake sins, too. And and I, I've had people in my office as a pastor where I've told them, well, that's not even a sin, but 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 Jesus forgives it. I forgive it in Jesus. But um, the, the terror of being turned inward. We are, by nature, as uh, sinful human beings, our old Adam, we are by nature, Cravatus and say, as, as, as Augustine said, we're turned in on ourselves. And the terror of that is that if you're honest, if you're a scrupulous person and you're honest and you go in on there's you're never going to find the treasure that you can pull out that gives you hope and confidence. You're always, it, it reminds me, I, so I got a cheap uh, Android tablet um, over Christmas to be just for reading. So I've got New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Atlantic, New Yorker, Kindle, like all just reading, and there's no social media apps, whatever. All that gets turned off, and I can just use that. But I had to put the case on, and I got it with the screen cover that comes in the case. And, Mike, you know me, and you've pointed out before, I can be extremely anal about some stuff and then not care about other stuff. I cannot stand a fleck of dust in that. I bet I spent four combined hours (laughs) trying to get every— 
But you know what I do? What, what would a sane person do? You'd put the case on and then you go, don't look for the speck of dust. But you know full well, if you were watching my eyes, you could predict what they do, Mike. Yeah. They, they just search. And that's being turned inside, which is what, what Luther was. In the confessional manuals, then, were to aid people in doing so. Michel Foucault um, was a, a French, uh, people would call him a postmodernist. Not all the postmodernists li- <coughs> excuse me, liked being called that. But he wrote his three-volume, what is it, History of Sex or History of Sexuality. Mike, it's to your left where you're sitting. Um, white bindings with black on the top, says Foucault. And um, second shelf from the bottom next to a blue book that says Foucault too, which I think is Ship of Fools. Mad. Um, but uh, anyways, he looks at, he his thesis was to kind of look and say, see, Christianity ruined sex. It made people all uptight. And he studies it and he actually goes, no, the Romans had ruined it earlier because the Romans got obsessed with um, you know, health or whatever, being clean. And so you had these notions that played into what was the right amount of sex to have and how do you balance things out. Um, but he does say what the confessional did is it, it made this something that had to be talked about. And you, the confessor, in Foucault is not a Christian, and, and he died, um, you know, sadly dies of AIDS in the 80s. Um, the joke is everybody cites Foucault but hasn't read him. I actually enjoy reading Foucault. He's a very interesting author. Him debating Chomsky is a fun debate to watch, by the way. And Madness and Civilization is, is where you probably could start if you ever wanted to get into that. It's a decent yeah. But anyway, yeah. But, um, but he says what we've inherited from that in, the, in, in post-modernity, or whatever you want to call now, is that we've now moved beyond to where we think we have sexual liberation, but we talk about it more than ever before. We still can't get out of the confessional. So Foucault was against labeling sexuality. He himself was a homosexual, but he didn't want to be labeled as a homosexual. Even sexuality is a French word that comes later, right? This isn't something that people, for most of human history, people had no idea of this thing of sexuality that you would define yourself by. But we still can't help but talk about it. And, and for right or wrong, you can disagree with him. He says that's our that's been bequeathed to us from the confessional. Um, now, set, the, set that as sex aside. But there is something to it. Uh, I think it's good that the confessional did realize that there's a benefit sometimes to talking about things you're struggling with. We recognize that today with therapy. Um, I would often tell my members, if there's a sin that's really bothering you, Come tell it to me. You're not telling it to me. You're telling it to Jesus. It will be forgotten from my mind, um, and I'm going to give you absolution so you can hear. You speak it, and God answers. Um, but when you're turned inside yourself, um, and you're supposed to scrutinize, and the whole goal is to keep finding more to be concerned about, you can imagine what that does to a, a conscience. And so what becomes extremely important, and Mike, I'm feeling somewhat validated. We're actually going with plenty of time on this one on this topic. What makes it important is he actually gets some good confessors, not always bad ones. And Staupitz becomes very important to this, who realize this is a guy who's taken this like super seriously, and he's really troubled. And so what do they do? They point him to Jesus. And they say, the one, you know, we don't know which one, but supposedly, or maybe somewhere we know, but the one finally says, God is not angry at you, Martin. You're angry at God. Now, that makes its way into the Luther's movie, and I can't give you the exact quote from... But it comes up that this is where he was pointed. Staupitz, I believe, gives him a crucifix. Um, but Staupitz, he says Staupitz was big on the wounds of Jesus. And and we see this in German piety, and it comes, well, even in our own hymnal of sacred head, now wounded, right? Mm-hmm. You, and, and that could be its own episode, Gerhardt, in that hymn. But uh, 
this is part of what gets him pointed to Christ. So for all the inward turnedness, these good Roman Catholic confessors, to their credit, and this is where the gospel has always been there. Sometimes it was obscured, but Lutheranism says there was always the church. The Reformed will say, oh, there was this big break, this lull. But it's always been there, even if clouded. They realize for this soul, we have to turn him outside of himself, and that will become crucial for what happens later. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you have to be nuanced enough and not just take Luther's, his own hyperbole about the confessional being the blah, 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 and the mass being the blah, 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 and the, and the monasteries being, the, you know, the, the, the worst thing ever, that there was really good things that came out of those things, right? And you have to be a little bit more nuanced of that. And a good father confessor, I mean, to hear somebody's sins and to say, you're forgiven, and then and then to see them outside of the confessional and and actually treat you the same way that they treat everybody else, it is really quite a quite a thing. And um, yeah, something you said a long time ago that I kind of piqued my interest a little bit. That you know, I'll forgive even these fake sins. Um, this is something that took me a while to learn, and I wish somebody would have told me this very early on in my ministry that you're going to try to talk a lot of people out of their sin. So what you're, they're going to do is they're going to be guilty about, they're going to feel guilty because, let's just, classic example, you know, a father is very upset that his grown son has turned out to be, you know, not great. Let's say he's been in and out of jail, this, that, and the other thing. And the father comes to you and you know him as he's a faithful man and, and probably was very, very good father. And he is just in tears, this grown man is in tears because he has felt that he has been uh, a failure and his children, uh, you know, or whatever has turned out so terrible. And you're like, no, it, you, you sit there and go, don't blame yourself. Don't whatever. And, and you may be exactly right. I it finally dawned on me for most of my pastoral ministry. I'm trying to get people to care enough to repent. And here I have somebody who is repenting. I'm trying to talk, talk them out of it. And finally, you're just like, I'm going to forgive you. That's the solution to that. I'm going to forgive you. And I'm not so much concerned maybe about getting into and being the, the psychologist and getting into why do you feel this way and right. what did you do? That's There's people part, for that. And, and maybe in a certain way that's, that's my part. But I wonder if how many marriages would have been saved and how many people would have been saved from just, just years of regret if we just had the habit of coming in and being forgiven. Just hearing those words like no matter what you say i'm before we get to any advice or before we get to any of that i am just going to absolve you right now even even if it's because you stole one paper clip from the bank on accident and didn't return it i'm going to consider that you a said sin you wouldn't tell anybody, Mike. and i'm going to forgive you and i'm not going to tell anybody about this insurrect you know this this awful thing that you did i'm just going to forgive you and um then there'll be some pastoral things that may have to be said, like as in, we, we stop worrying about it, there's real sins, you know, yeah. or, or, you know, um, what can we do to maybe, maybe fix this a little bit, try to make this, how can, how can you go forward in a mortification of the flesh kind of attitude instead of being so, as you said, curved inward. And so, so there, I wonder if, if the confessional for Luther as a confessing person, not as one who heard confession, which is a whole other aspect of this topic, that he heard all these confessions, 
that, you know, these penetrating questions, which I suppose could have been good, like, let's get to that you actually are sinful in your thought, in your actual desire. But um, it, it really backfired a little bit, and, and, and it became more of a psychological warfare on the, on the person. I'm going to really get you to really, really confess instead of just saying, instead of the focus being on the absolution, Right. And, and I wonder, too, maybe you can answer this way. Uh, here's a question for you. Was the main problem of the of the medieval confessional, the so-called satisfaction? I, I'm, I'm going I know that's a problem, but I'm I'm going less and less that way because I see it sort of as pastoral care run amok and not understood, say, these 10 Hail Marys. But the penetrating questions with the never ending the never-ending comfort of you're forgiven no matter what, more the enumeration, of the, not just the enumeration of sins, but getting you really, what's, where's your, you know, you really, really have sinned here, that kind of right. thing. I wonder if that is the issue. Well, and I think it's, and this comes up then again in Protestantism, especially with people who focus on progressive sanctification. Now, there's a sense in the in the narrow sense of sanctification that we can talk about these things, but you know, if and I don't want to pick on Methodists, but you think Wesleyanism, Methodism, Nazarenes, um, that you are going to expose your sins so that you can fix them and move beyond. Mm-hmm. Well, that keeps you constantly looking within yourself for things, and I think you're onto something. With obviously the satisfaction a- aspect of it is very problematic, and it flows out of how Rome saw justification in a legal sense. Um, you know, do penance as a, as opposed to repent. Uh, Latin, unfortunately, there. Um, <clears throat> That it's never ending once you look at, if you honestly look inside yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think you got it something too of, you mentioned the person who maybe comes and their, their child hasn't grown up how they hoped they would. Um, Jim Nestigan has a, a powerful story he tells, you know, of a woman who had been the victim of a sexual abuse and, and essentially begs to confess. And he, right, he listens to this trauma and this woman who's been victimized. But even though she had done nothing wrong, no one could have been more a victim than, I mean, th- we think of victims, right? Victims are victims, but the power of the absolution. Um, sometimes this come up, comes up in ministry when parents have lost a child. Maybe there's been a miscarriage, and th- those parents did nothing wrong. In fact, I know those are going to be the best parents in my congregation when God gives them another child. Um, but this sense of guilt, and, and so the power of absolution, and, and maybe the danger when we turn— there's a place for pastoral counseling, but I found that a, the majority of my counseling in the end really just ended up being confession and absolution. How do, my counseling was, how do we get these two people to figure out they're, they're both sinful and they both need absolution? Yeah. And sometimes when we, re, when we see the pastor's goal too much as counseling and not enough as absolution, are we maybe at risk to returning to the very problems that Luther experienced in the confessional at this time? Because the pastor is then trying to probe and find out, right? It, we become entirely introspective, and, and that's not—there's a place for marital counseling. There's the Bible address, but but when absolution is not central, it can lose its moorings and maybe become dangerous even. Um, something connected to this, too, and this will come out later, and I don't want us to go too long on this, Mike, but um, will be this experience in the confessional really is what— makes Luther so adept at dealing with others' suffering. Um, 
a similar experience later. So his letters of consolation are just extremely powerful. There's a number of books written about these. You read letters that he writes to people who are struggling spiritually with doubt, <coughs> um, maybe even what we would today would call clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And he is able to kind of speak to them in a way that doesn't, how often don't we add to the burden unintentionally when we speak to such people? But he can he can kind of stand next to them as one who has been there. We see that with Melanchthon, the famous, you know, the famous word "sin boldly." Um, Luther doesn't mean by that go sin it up. What he means is Melanchthon, at least commit a real sin if you're going to be so troubled by your sins. Flacius, who I study, went through um, a time of of depression and then with that spiritual doubt, um, and he didn't spend a lot of time with Luther, but he did go to Luther with this, and Luther was very helpful with this, um, recognizing sometimes that what we need to do with our fellow Christian is walk around side them uh, and point them outside of ourselves to the cross and to the absolution. And I think while this time of introspection was, you know, early on in the ministry, it seems like he's enjoying it. But like anything, once the the polish wears off, you start to realize, maybe I'm not getting as holy as I thought I was going to be, and I've thrown myself into these things. That introspection became useful in that it finally drove him outside of himself. And so with, thankfully, some confessors who did preach the gospel, whether they realized it or not, maybe they were just trying to get him out of the confessional, uh, he gets pointed outside of himself. And I think that's very important to understand is some of the roots for what will happen with this Reformation breakthrough whenever that takes place. And I think it also makes it really helpful for when you read the Heidelberg Disputation, for instance, you can really see what he's getting at with some of these things in there. Yeah, so, you know, for pastors who are listening out there, you know, I, I, I realize how, what a difficult time it would be to all of a sudden take a bunch of Lutherans and say, we're going to do private confession absolution now, and, and it's kind of a generational thing. Um, but to teach it anyway and to offer it, and you may be surprised that there may be some people that, that may, may still come, and um, and, and just to... Just to just to forgive, just to give them that that free conscience, and boy, it really is a powerful thing. Rumors and will start to spread. You you might be surprised. Um, you know, people might come out and they're not fixed, but rumors will start to spread of this um, audacious thing Pastor did, where he went in and he told me uh, I was forgiven. And and there's other people who, in the depths, you know, you might find kind of just hanging around one day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or I would sometimes out and about, they've heard this rumor that maybe, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's this good word that might be shared and, and it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to have that become somewhat, uh, what we're known for. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to back up, uh, with, with Luther, that not only was it, I think him being a confessing person that, that was partly instrumental in who he became, but then he heard confessions. And so he was in the in the mind of those people and what they were suffering and how they thought about their sin, whether r- rightly or incorrectly, right? And uh, really get to know your people that way. I mean, how, how wonderful it would be um, if you had people who were regularly uh, um, confessing um, that you would you would be more in tune with them. Your preaching probably would would get better. And if you're thinking, but I have to do all this counseling, I don't have time for confessing. Um, I bet you if you did all the confessing, you'd have a heck of a lot less counseling. But something to think about there, too. So I'll give you the last word. 
Um, I guess my last word would just be, I know we got, I don't think we got a, f- a far afield because we were trying, with some of this, we're trying to show how these things became important theologically. Um, but I would just say, it's very important to understand, notice how much Luther has going on at this time. He's a student, he's a teacher, he's got his, his daily practices as a monk. Um, but this is also a time of introspection, turned inside himself, examining himself, and uh, we need to keep that in mind as we kind of get ready for some of the breakthrough stuff that will be happening, that it's as that person, a person who really, to an extent, lives in the confessional, someone who confesses to people who know the manuals for drawing a confession out of someone, as someone who hears confessions, as someone who knows the manuals for how you draw questions out of people and, and kind of point them into themselves, um, what Romans one seventeen will sound like to those ears um, and and how important the counsel that Staupitz and others will give or the absolution they will give in pointing him to Christ. So I think that's critical. And while we're not, I told you we were going to jump around chronologically here. Um, it, I think it's important for understanding this stage of life. So with that, I think we can, uh, unless you have anything, Mike, wrap it up and I guess let the bird fly. Round, another round. 